Hello and welcome to A World to Win, a podcast from Tribune magazine. I'm Grace Blakely bringing you your weekly dose of socialist news, theory and action from around the world. We have a very special episode for you this week in which I talk to Palestinian activist Akram Salhab on his experience living and organising in Palestine, exactly what is happening in Sheikh Jarrah and the heroic efforts of Palestinians to resist Israeli occupation, as well as what socialists around the world can do to support them. This week, the full episode is available for free, and we would really like to encourage our listeners to donate to charities supporting Palestinians on the ground. You can donate to Medical Aid for Palestinians at map.org.uk. As Akram mentions on the show today, so many Palestinians are dying. It is so important for those who can to donate what they can to ensure that those resisting occupation and those simply trying to live while Palestinian are able to continue their struggle. Thank you for your solidarity. Now here is Akram Salhab from Jerusalem. Hello, Akram Salhab, and thank you so much for joining me on this episode of A World to Win. How are you today? I'm very well, thanks. How are you? Good, not bad, thank you. Thank you so much for joining us all the way from Jerusalem. We are really looking forward to kind of getting your take as to what's going on on the ground right now. But can you just start by telling us what has been going on in Jerusalem to make it this enormous focal point for international mobilization? Yeah, of course. I think, um, you know, events have developed really quickly. So what's happened is basically three different issues of um all related to Israel's attempts to forcibly expel Palestinians from Jerusalem and to reduce them to a small minority in their homeland have kind of come together to really spark the current crisis. So things began um, a few weeks ago at Damascus Gate. What happens during the holy month of Ramadan in Jerusalem is that it becomes very clear that this is a Palestinian city there are Ramadan lights up everywhere. There are Palestinians coming and going to the mosque in very large numbers. Um, shops are open late into the night. And one of the places that um, Palestinians would always gather is by Damascus Gate, which is the main Palestinian, well, one of the main gates into Jerusalem. You know, Israel has, as well as many of the things we know that happened in Jerusalem, which have been going on for many years, so the construction of this wall, which has cut off many Palestinian communities from Jerusalem, the revocation of ID cards from people who come uh, fall on the other side of the wall so they can't access work, health facilities, education facilities in Jerusalem. And that's happened to more than 14,000 people since 67 and obviously and counting. And um, strategic attempts to take over Palestinian areas. So settler groups move into a Palestinian area and uh, attempts are made to forcibly expel Palestinians from their homes and to take them over by... Jewish settler groups, that's including in the old city of Jerusalem and across different neighborhoods around Jerusalem. You know, this isn't just supposition or conjecture or us uh, guessing uh, as to Israel's intentions, but actually all of the things we see taking place in Jerusalem, restrictions on Palestinian housing, house demolitions, uh, takeover of Palestinian homes, and all the very obvious means of taking as much land as possible was pushing Palestinians off that land and taking that land with as few Palestinians as possible on it. All of that is backed up by Israeli official documentation. That is the plan, as Israel has said in many different documents, including by the Israeli municipality, who aim to reduce the Palestinian population of the city to 30%, and increase the Jewish population to 70%. I mean, this runs alongside 
attempts to semi-integrate some areas into Jerusalem by, by, for instance, building Israeli schools with Israeli curriculum and um, weakening the Palestinian schools, which have a Palestinian curriculum in the city. So there's this dual process of attempting to expel Palestinians, take as much land, few Palestinians on as possible, and integrate some small sectors into Jerusalem, but all on the basis that they're fragmented and divided up. So really what the message is, alongside this kind of physical removal of people, is a policy of ensuring that the Palestinian character of the city is being destroyed, essentially. So Israel's closed 90 organizations in Jerusalem over the past few years, cultural associations, social associations, um, and also they closed down events taking place in the city. So as an example, they closed down an event that was taking place in Jerusalem for Women's Day, which was this March. Um, And... All of this is aimed at making sure that the Palestinian uh, character of the city and that any way of collectively coming together, expressing our culture, organizing ourselves socially, never mind politically, um, that all of this is destroyed and diminished. And so what happened this year was that um, the authorities saw that, as is every year, this is the case, that Palestinians during their various festive seasons you know, express themselves in the city in ways that make it very clear that this is a very large Palestinian population and that this is a this is a Palestinian city essentially. So on Ramadan, it happens in the way that I just described, and Palestinians always get, would always gather at Damascus Gate and stay there after Tarawih prayers and after iftar and smoke shisha or hang out. And so this year, the the police put barriers to prevent people sitting on the steps because they didn't want that big visible presence of Palestinians sat there. So Palestinians resisted that, and after about 10 days of protests, they eventually removed the barriers from the steps. After that, the kind of the mobilization around that, which was mainly led by Palestinian youth in Jerusalem, then carried over to the events that were happening not too far down the road in the neighborhood called Sheikh Jarrah. And Sheikh Jarrah is just one of many Palestinian neighborhoods that are facing forced evictions, but it just so happened that it coincided, the mobilization and the hashtag Save Sheikh Jarrah coincided with what was happening at Damascus Gate. And there was a court case which was intended to come to its conclusions last month. So all the energy from Damascus Gate shifted to Sheikh Jarrah and there was a big mobilization, both on the ground, but also online, of people demanding that the 28 families there not be evicted from their homes. And this is a long-running legal case in which um, Israeli settler groups have been trying to take over the homes of Palestinians who've lived there for many generations. And then there was a mobilization around that, um, which resulted essentially in the court case being delayed by a month. So it's coming up soon now. As a result of these mobilizations, Israel felt that it couldn't it couldn't announce the result of the court case whilst the the city was in in a in the in a situation of an uprising and a big mobilization and the final kind of part of this puzzle is that the ramadan this year also coincided with what israelis call jerusalem day which manifests itself in many tens of thousands of far right israeli settlers coming down to jerusalem marching through the old city and Palestinians generally know that on that day, my, my parents, for example, have a shop in the old city. They know that you don't go down and open your shop that day, that you have to shutter it and make sure it's uh, locked up very securely because these gangs of far-right settlers roam through the old city 
chanting death to the Arabs, spraying graffiti everywhere and generally looking for trouble. And they've been known to smash up shops and cause physical destruction of properties. So Palestinians generally will lock up on that day. But on this year, that day coincided with um, the end of Ramadan and was around the same time as Laylatul Qadr, which is the holiest night of the year for Muslims. And so the Israeli authorities wanted to make sure that these set- the settlers could go onto Al-Aqsa Mosque, into the compound, and um, have a presence there and pray there on, on Jerusalem Day. But Palestinians were obviously there, so they tried to force their set- way into the mosque, the Israeli um, police, and that caused the scenes that everyone saw in the news of sound bombs, of... Um, of shooting, of beatings, of arrests taking place in Al-Aqsa Mosque. But in the end, on all three of these points, it ended up that Palestinians were in the city were kind of victorious because they were forced to remove the barriers from Damascus Gate. They were forced to delay the court case in Sheikh Jarrah. And settlers, in the end, were not allowed to get into Al-Aqsa Mosque because despite hours of attacks against worshippers there, Palestinians refused to leave. And then the settlers also would generally go to Damascus Gate, but this year they, they couldn't go there either, and they were stuck at Jaffa Gate from where they eventually dispersed. So Palestinians were basically winning victories led by the youth in small ways across the city, but faced by you know a, quite a terrifying array of weaponry, which includes heavily armed police, many of them military police, border police, horses, so horse charges were regularly taking place, sound bombs, shootings, beatings, undercover police are joining the demonstrations as if they're as though they're demonstrators and then gr- grabbing people, arresting them, beating them up. Um, and this this new, well, relatively new innovation, which is the skunk, which is a very large van that has a water cannon on it and it sprays this foul-smelling um water all over protesters. So large parts of the city now smell of this disgusting sewagey water smell. So for Palestinians, the the issue in Jerusalem is on one hand a religious one. Obviously, it's very holy to Palestinian Muslims and also Palestinian Christians. This year at Easter, Palestinian Christians trying to get into uh, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. Many of them were prevented from being allowed in from Israeli police and many of Many of them were attacked by the police and beaten, and they normally parade through the old city with the scouts and the drums and um, you know making a big noise. So the Palestinian Muslim and Christians is a very obviously holy city to them, but really what it represents is our very presence in this city and our different conflicting views of sovereignty. And you know Palestinians are saying that we want a city which is free, we want a country which is free, we want somewhere where everyone can live in freedom and peace and justice, and that's not what Israel wants. But the attacks on Al-Aqsa were so grave that that eventually was picked up by Palestinians inside 48, who began this extraordinary mobilization, which no one really expected to happen in quite the way that it happened, across 30 different cities and towns and villages across Palestine 48, which was the areas of Palestine occupied in, in the 1948 war. Um, and that was this enormous uprising of people out in the streets, pulling down Israeli flags, destroying cameras, attacking Israeli police cars, and generally liberating space for them to not be under the constant surveillance and the attack of Israelis. And there's this myth that's been circulated in the media the past few weeks of what's happened inside 
what they call mixed villages and mixed towns and cities is neighbor upon neighbor and a breakdown of social cohesion. But anyone who lives in 48 can tell you that that's not what has, what life has been like for people there. It's actually been very many of the same policies of restrictive planning, of harassment by police, of forcing Palestinians into smaller and smaller ghettos. You know, in, in the Negev, for example, the Nakab Desert in the south, there are 80,000 people who live in unrecognized villages and routinely have their villages demolished or under threat of demolition. And so if you actually look at the social conditions across what are known as Palestinian citizens of Israel, you'll see that there's, there's nothing like some happy, clappy coexistence that collapsed. There were actually circumstances of extreme oppression and Palestinians in these areas rose up in solidarity with Jerusalem and Al-Aqsa and what was happening there as much as they did against their own conditions in which they were being kept by, by the Israeli state. Has the situation worsened a great deal for Palestinians in recent years? What is it like at the moment for ordinary Palestinians on the ground? The overall dynamic here is across the country is the one that I've described in Jerusalem and is, you know, the long-standing nature of the Israeli state, which is to try and continue to take as much land as possible and have as few Palestinians on that land. So that takes all kinds of different methods of implementation, some of which I've just given examples of now. In 48, there was forced expulsions. In 67, there were forced expulsions, forcing people to flee. But these policies have continued at a pace since the establishment of the State of Israel and even beforehand. So it's difficult to really determine sometimes, you know, the question like this is difficult to really break down what's worse and what's better. But really, the the Trump administration supported the Israeli state, which has already swung even further to the right. Obviously, in a settler colonial society, the left itself is quite genocidal and um, racist, but it's uh, become much more vocal in its expression of a lot of these views. And the right-wing settler movement has really taken much much more prominent role in society, culturally and politically. Um, and as a result of that, Land confiscations have increased, attacks against Palestinians by settlers have increased, and then there's a number of symbolic things that Israel you know, has been planning to do. The nation-state law, which was passed a few years ago, which said that only Jews had the right to self-determine inside the state of Israel, no one else. And the annexation plans, which have been shelved but would, could easily re-emerge at any moment, which were essentially a formalization of the status quo, which was a confiscation of Palestinian land en masse. So, yeah, there's been an escalation in recent years and an attempt by the Israeli authorities to see how much they can squeeze Palestinians. And I think this latest mobilization and the Israeli response to it is really kind of something that, um, again, we can see this escalation in some of the ways that they've chosen to kind of respond to the Palestinians standing up and demanding their rights. How are Palestinian people resisting? Is the resistance that we're seeing at the moment, is it spontaneous? Has it been kind of becoming organised for quite some time now? I guess I'd say there's a mixture of things. The political situation is complex in many ways because of different Palestinian factions, the nature of leadership in our society, and the sense that young people have that they're not represented by anyone. And that's really across the entirety of the Palestinian people, I would say. But 
what's happening now is that people are finding new ways to resist or recreating old ways of resisting that are based on self-reliance and self-organization. So the other day I was out in Jerusalem and I, um, a settler had come and shot someone in outside Sheikh Jarrah um, in the head and they were taken off to hospital. Um, but word got round through WhatsApp groups and about 100 people showed up within 10 minutes just as I was passing through in order to defend the house to make sure there could be no further attacks. So there's a lot of ways of just self-organization through WhatsApp um, through other means so that people can basically defend themselves. And it's difficult to, to explain this without going into the details of how Israel has been responding. But I think the other, the other element of this is that Israel has now launched or allowed settler groups a much freer reign to attack Palestinians. So in the West Bank, villages have long, which are near settlements, have long experienced settlers coming, burning crops, attacking people, attempting to destroy homes. And occasionally the army or the police will come and try and tell them to go away, but they'll just come back the next day. So this routine harassment and attacking of Palestinians is quite familiar in the West Bank. But what's happened is that these many of these groups, literally from the West Bank, extremist right-wing settler groups have come inside mixed towns inside 48. And they've begun marching through these villages and towns armed to the teeth, trying to burn homes and attacking Palestinians um, at will. And often the police are there and they don't do anything to restrain them. There was three people shot at the end of my road in Jerusalem, where I currently live by um, armed settlers who came into the area. So this is a real escalation on the part of the Israelis in allowing them a much freer reign to, to attack people. And in response, a lot many Palestinians have created self-help committees, self-defense committees, bringing people together, making sure they're watching out for each other. You know, and the, the idea of these, these groups being unleashed in towns is that people feel cowed and scared and feel like they need to stay indoors. So how do you continue a resistance being out in the streets, being out in protest when these are the circumstances that are taking place around you? But it's really a new generation. It's a bit of a stereotype, but, you know, powered through or able to express itself and connect slightly easy in some respects because of social media, but really with deep-rooted local organizing, um, which has just caught on like wildfire. And it's difficult to explain the speed which which so many people, you know, have just become transformed by these circumstances to taking up and being able to resist. What kind of tactics and forms of violence are being used to try and quash the resistance that is emerging? The most obvious form of that is what's been happening in Gaza, not just in this war, but the past wars, which is a real attempt to make sure the Palestinians understand that any resistance that they express will be punished in the most violent ways. So the mass bombardment and murder of people in Gaza is the most obvious expression of, of Israel essentially saying there's n- you, you're not allowed to resist in any way. And inside 48, that's taken the form that I just, ex- I just mentioned, as well as the settler gangs being unleashed in Palestinian towns, they've also been, some have been put under armed curfew villages surrounded by um, military vehicles and campaign inside Palestine 48, what people call Israel, of mass arrests. So I think 700 people have been arrested since things began and many dozens more in Jerusalem and no doubt many more to come. 
one of the messages that the Israeli intelligence started sending to people was saying, we know you were in Al-Aqsa during the events that unfolded over the past few weeks and we're going to come and collect you and we're going to come and arrest you um, and sort you out sort of thing. So, you know, there's, and Israel's always used arrests and violence in this way. So that's something that's also going to probably escalate over the coming weeks as they attempt to break this popular resistance. So the people who've organized the strike today, who've organized many of the popular committees to resist the, the attacks and dispossession, they will no doubt be targeted. How critical have international arms shipments and geopolitical support been in allowing the Israeli government to continuously get away with this violence? Yeah, I think um, in the West, and, you know, having lived in Britain for a while myself, you often hear these discussions about, you know, both sides and being balanced and bringing people together. But I think what's happened is actually quite the opposite, is that most countries in the West in particular, but obviously elsewhere in the world, have taken a very strong position in support of Israel by their actions. And in the case of Britain, those actions are continuing to trade arms with a very violent state, even though they know that they will be used in violation of human rights. Any human rights report that you look at for five minutes will tell you that. And as well as the arms, there's also the general financial relationship. So whether that's the US military aid or aid to Israel in general, whether that's allowing fundraising in Britain for the Jewish National Fund, which is taking actions in breach of international law by building parks on demolished and destroyed Palestinian villages or taking over Palestinian land to build these parks, or you know whether that's continuing to trade and purchase and allow the sale of Israeli goods in British supermarkets, or also any of the corporations, not just arms firms, but also Caterpillar and others who are responsible for demolishing or building some of the machines that are used or have been used in demolishing Palestinian homes. You know, these are all not just kind of, aside from the statements of disappointment and sadness about violence that the British government might put out, in reality, the British state has taken a very firm position in support of Israel by allowing the physical infrastructure that allows Israel to maintain the occupation and allowing the firms that facilitate that to continue trading and working. So I think that this is where the problem lies. It's that when we talk about solidarity, we also, in in, in its most basic sense, we say governments and firms and society in the West should not be supporting and funding the Israeli state to do what it's doing. And it's instrumental in Israel being able to continue what it's doing. If they didn't have the support of the West, if they didn't have money flowing in from America, if they didn't have NGOs collecting money and donating them to organizations engaged in settler colonial practices, then they wouldn't have the physical ability, they wouldn't have the financial ability to do what they're doing. So I think, you know, it's really important that This is something people pick up and work on, especially at this moment in time. Are you at all surprised that Biden, whose domestic policy has been greeted as relatively progressive by the US left, has just announced $735 million worth of weapons sales to Israel? Well, um, you know, it's difficult really in US politics to know what to expect in relation to, you know, their relationship with, with Israel. And this is something that has been much debated in U.S. politics 
especially over recent years. But in reality, nothing much has changed. So you had this situation when Obama was in office where the US administration periodically had confrontations with um, the Israelis about settlements, around demanding a freeze on settlements, on various points in which the Obama administration differed from Netanyahu's government. But when push came to shove, the Obama administration was still funding Israel, announced the biggest arms deal with Israel, I think, in in the history of the relationship between the two countries, and um, did nothing practically to actually... It was in the last week of his office, I think, they voted through a UN Security Council resolution condemning settlements. But aside from that, and, you know, attempts to push back and restrain Israel here and there, the main thrust of the relationship stayed the same. And, you know, there's lots of debates whether this is a result of shared imperial interests or whether, you know, the lobby in the US is able to push the administration to maintain their support for Israel. But the the reality of it is that that really hasn't changed and it didn't change with Obama. And I'm not really sure how much people hope that it would change with Biden. You know, his personal views have been quite clear for some time. Um, And Kamala Harris, I understand, is also someone who is very committed to maintaining the same imperialist practices when it comes to supporting Israel um, in its oppression of the Palestinian people. So I think that, and and I think more broadly in the United States, there's this, um, and, you know, I think we also saw it in the UK as well, there's an ability to talk the talk about progressive policy domestically, but when it comes to challenging imperialist policies abroad, that would be um, a challenge to the military-industrial complex, then you start getting a pushback, which is much more significant. So we saw this with, for instance, with Corbyn, when people were willing to say, oh, yes, we support Corbyn's position on you know nationalisation and this and that, but we differ with him that he shouldn't be talking about these boring things abroad and these insignificant things that are happening in Palestine or Cuba, Papua New Guinea or whatever. And that was a constant stick that the right used to beat him with. So I think there is more generally this um this kind of consensus that you can you can be left wing in in the West in ways that might have some might be socially democratic economically, but the minute you start trying to challenge imperialism and that essential relationship that the West has with the rest of the world, then you start coming up against a very serious challenge. And so when Biden, I think, came, there's a long way of saying, I think when Biden came into office, he obviously had a decision. What the Trump administration managed to do was move the terms of the debate, terms of reference, so far to the right. Things like moving the American embassy to Jerusalem, like taking symbolic steps like that, also of cutting funds to UNRWA to attempt to destroy UNRWA being the Palestinian refugee agency. So the the Trump administration cut their funding to it in order to help attempt to destroy Palestinian rights as refugees and many other measures that they took. But Trump took the discussion so far to the right under his terms of the deal of the century that Biden, what he has done is come back in slightly amended and uh, watered down some elements of that, 
but not really taken steps to reverse a lot of the things that Trump did. And it seems from what we can see, not just on the the weapon sales that have taken place, but also these broader policies and a failure to reverse or only partially reverse some of the most damaging and dangerous of Trump's policies, that Biden doesn't really want to deal with this in any substantial way. He wants to continue the status quo. And, you know, it's really a big job for people in America to make all the gains and public information and awareness of what Israel is doing towards Palestinians in that country to transform that into some kind of political power, because at the moment, that's not the case. And from the perspective of Palestinians here, you know, we are undertaking a struggle. As I was talking about, this is something that began in Jerusalem, but spread to all Palestinian areas. So that includes the areas in 48, that includes massive demonstrations that have been taking place in the West Bank. And that also includes Palestinians in Lebanon and Jordan who tried to cross the border in order to return home, many of them being refugees of 73 years or longer. This struggle that we're now engaged in across all these Palestinian communities, so much has been done in order to divide us and separate us from one another. We really need the almost unqualified support of Israel. We really need that to end because it, it makes any attempt to struggle against this injustice virtually impossible because the power asymmetry is so um, considerable. So, you know, this is really something that we, we, we need to work on, I guess, in Britain as well as in the United States. Can you tell us a little bit about the general strike that's going on in Palestine today? Sure, yeah. So today is the 18th of May, and there is a historic general strike that's been called in Palestine. This general strike is building on the rich legacy that Palestinians have of striking as workers, as shopkeepers in the different parts of our society in order to cause economic, to inflict economic damage on the Israeli state, which limits their ability to operate freely and to continue committing the crimes that they're committing. And this has happened throughout our history all kinds of different moments in time. It was very prominent in the first intifada. It was very prominent in the second intifada. And as Israel has committed and escalated their attacks against different sectors of the population or attacked al-Aqsa or committed certain crimes, general strikes have been called. And sometimes there's been complete um, adherence, especially during the time when Palestinians were organized um, much more formally in the structures of the Palestine Liberation Organization, including in the first intifada when you had local committees who were um, responsible for coordinating the strikes. But the strike that's happened now, I think, is really, really important in many and different from what we've seen before in many different respects. First of all, it was literally called yesterday. And it's already got wide adherence if you look at any of the cities that are happening today, there's an enormous, um, well, people are adhering to it. Shops are closed, people aren't going to work, and it's had an enormous impact. But also, crucially, it's happened across all of historic Palestine. So it's not just West Bank and Jerusalem, for example. It's West Bank, Jerusalem, and all the lands inside 48 as well. And that's really important because Palestinians inside 48 have been incorporated into the Israeli labor market in a way that makes them essential to the operating of the Israeli economy. And so the impact that a strike of this type can have is much more considerable. 
and it's also you know the, the central dynamic politically of um of Israel's relationship to Palestinians is an attempt always to fragment us to so to give different rights to Palestinians um depending on where they are so some inside 48 have citizenship in Jerusalem you have residency in the West Bank you have um a West Bank ID in Gaza you have a different status I mean as refugees you have a completely different status altogether so to give different rights to subsets of groups and to deny rights to others in order to create this sense that we're dealing with a very divided people or there's racism against Palestinians inside 48 and that's somehow separate to the broader settler colonial policies of the state and you know also creates a sense of well I you know we might be bad here but at least I'm not in Gaza kind of thing but what's happened in this latest mobilization is that Palestinians have rejected all of that and this is a project of decades in the making with lots of different stories which go into that there's a minority inside Palestinian society called the Druze and they've Israel's been quite successful in incorporating them into the state and inside the military for example but there's a movement amongst the Druze who who want to try and tell the community they shouldn't be serving in the army they shouldn't be serving in the police um where to which they're forcibly conscripted but you know this what we're seeing at the moment is a real rebirth of the Palestinian nation in the sense of a people willing to understand or understanding that this is a single cause and that we can only be successful if we're able to stand together and confront it and this has partly been brought about by the circumstances you know it's very difficult to collaborate or have any relation to a state which you know has oppressed you for many years but it hasn't got to the stage necessarily that unleashing armed settler groups who are firebombing buildings with children in them until today and so people's back is really against the wall but they've also been able to see that what happens in different sectors of Palestine is actually all connected and we're all part of the same the cause the the source of the oppression is the same the cause is also the same and so we have to work together across these different boundaries and across these different divisions to make sure that that we're able to act together as one and so that's what the strike today represents which is Palestinians coming together despite all this fragmentation to strike together to act together and to impact the Israeli economy in order to get it to stop its attack on Gaza which is now reaching this horrific pitch um I've not seen the latest statistics of the dead and injured but um I'm sure you can add them to the podcast for the show whenever it goes out but you know these these numbers are through the roof Israel's impunity is very obvious it's clear that it's um it's willing to flagrantly ignore international law to bomb even um not that it's any worse than a civilian building but you know for the international media press to bomb even the international media building on the most flimsy of premises in order to prevent people seeing from what's taking place in Gaza and to prevent the news of what's happening there getting out um you know there's this extreme violent and urgent situation that Israel is undertaking a renewed massacre in Gaza and God knows what inside 48 in Jerusalem you know the other day we saw two 300 settlers march into Sheikh Jarrah smashing up houses um smashing up shops smashing up cars you know just going on an absolute rampage and this has been happening everywhere so you know it's not an exaggeration to say that there's a definitely a potentially genocidal situation on our hands so with all this unfolding i think that um the palestinians saying that 
we're not gonna we're not gonna bow down and accept this and actually we're gonna stand together and act together and this is in the circumstances an extraordinary achievement and as i say it was put out by palestinian youth and popular organizations yesterday it's had wide adherence today and this is before even many of the palestinian institutions and organizations and groups you know have managed to build and mobilize for this so you know alongside this mobilization what we're going to what we're already seeing what we're going to see more of is a flourishing of palestinian organizing in our communities on the ground coming together building the structures that so that we can resist what Israel is doing to us and also build a society which is working towards the achievement of our rights why do you think that the rest of the world is rallying so strongly to the palestinian cause at this moment i think you know it's um it's something that ebbs and flows with the circumstances the visibility of the solidarity for Palestine. But I think most people realize that what's happened in Palestine for the past few decades is one of a grave injustice against an indigenous people who are fighting for their rights, despite the overwhelming power of the state that they're facing. And you find across the world that free people or struggling people or the peoples of the world in general generally stand with the Palestinian cause because they see that struggle for liberation is one that they identify with, that they see it in very much as part of a global struggle against oppression, against colonialism, and against capitalism. And, you know, when things escalate in the way that they have done recently, it just brings to the fore the severity and the extremity of the injustice. So people who were around in 2014 or around in 2008 and 2009 when Israel had what they called Operation Cast Lead, or around during the Second Intifada, will realize that solidarity always increases when people see a people struggling for their rights, when they see the nature of the injustice laid bare. And there's this attempt, I think, to kind of normalize what's happening in Palestine and to talk about it in terms of a conflict and to create a situation where Israel's occupation is the norm and daily attacks and daily violence takes place in a village here, in a settlement there, inside 48, you know, through a judicial system where the violence is quite, is relatively contained, but it has its small expressions and outlets here and there. And when that happens, far away from the world's media, you get this sense of, something bad happening somewhere else in the world, one or two instances or stories filtering through, but you don't necessarily get a sense of the overall machinery of the Israeli state. You know, I was giving examples about Jerusalem, like how culturally you destroy a people, how socially you dismantle a people's unity. You know, all these practices are not so easy to report in the media or not report in the media in the same way. So you just get a sense of something bad happening far away in the world, but you don't get understand understanding of the structures and the processes, and the dynamics that are in play. So the violence of settler colonialism can, to some extent, be concealed. But when Israel, as it periodically does, decides it needs a show of force or it needs to test its weaponry or it needs to adhere to meet the demands of this kind of extreme right-wing Israeli public, which is out for blood, then they feel that then they they need to ramp up the oppression, ramp up the escalation. And that's what's happened in this instance. And when that happens, the latent violence within 
the Israeli settler colonial state, then it just becomes very visible and impossible to hide. And so we see these massacres in Gaza every so often, and we see these wars which ex- cause extraordinary damage to a civilian population who've been kept in these hideous circumstances. And there's no ambiguity about what circumstances would elicit police going into a, a holy site on the most religious day in the year using the kind of force that people saw. Them watching into the mosque, chucking sound bombs, would justify them bombing all the buildings that they're bombing in Gaza. The the nature of the siege that they put in Gaza is evident in itself that this it's not an attempt to do anything other than destroy a, a civilian population. You know, they've t- and I don't want to go back to this, but I just I think it's a good example. You know, someone was saying about the building that they said, oh, well, Hamas were operating from the building that uh, Associated Press and other news agencies were using. So they gave them an hour to get their things out and they left. Well, if the point was to target Hamas, then surely they just left as well. You know, so these the, the more ludicrous and ridiculous and daft sort of logics that they try and foist upon people where they're trying to present themselves as somehow a moral army or somehow care in any way, shape or form about human rights or whatever other marketing they attempt to do for themselves, in these moments it becomes impossible for any of that to operate because people see that this is a brutal regime willing to go to virtually any length to destroy Palestinians as a society and to force us to just disappear. And Palestinians are saying that we don't want to disappear. And when people see us standing up and fighting for our rights in that way, they know what that means and they understand the nature of Britain's relationship with Palestine and many other Western and other governments in supporting and maintaining that oppression and they feel the need to move and they feel the need to act. And I think it's a testament to the strong sympathies of many people around the world that they see that and their immediate reaction is we have to do something about it. It's not a sense of like, oh, isn't that terrible, but what can you do? People feel the need to move and they feel the need to act. And we see that, you know, people come out in huge numbers on the streets and that's a visible expression of that. But behind the scenes, people start working in their trade unions, they start working in their faith institutions, they start working on all levels of society, lobbying their politicians to find some way of bringing this violence to an end. What should socialists be doing to express meaningful solidarity with Palestine? I think um, socialists and everyone who believes in justice internationally should be um, thinking concretely, wherever they are, whatever sphere of life they work or operate in, what kind of thing they can be doing. Now, that's going to differ in many different ways, depending on who you are, depending on where you work, depending on the networks you're part of. But everyone can certainly do something. And I think one of the important things to speak about in moments like this is that, you know, we often hear about solidarity internationally and what it really means and how impactful it is and You know, people try and say, oh, you know, just some people kind of obsessed with some conflict far, far away. But in moments like this, we really see solidarity as a really powerful, important force. Because when Israel is undertaking attacks of this kind, it's not just a general sense of how can we build solidarity and links, twinnings uh, that people do in the UK between different towns or schools or stuff. How can we build knowledge and support and understanding over the longer term. But solidarity in this context of an extremely violent attack on Gaza, of a serious and very dangerous escalation against Palestinians everywhere, 
is that Israel is measuring what it can get away with. And if they see that the world is rising up, both in word, in the responses of international governments, of institutions, of trade unions and of faith organizations, but also indeed in people taking action, um, divesting from funds complicit in, in the Israeli occupation, refusing as um, workers in Italy have and in workers in Oakland did in 2014, refusing to export Israeli goods or weapons. When you see people rising up in these really practical ways, then you begin to see that um, what we're involved in when we talk about solidarity in these moments is in real time constricting and limiting and restraining this Israeli war machine from continuing its violence against the Palestinians. So the task of all people wanting to stand in solidarity with Palestine is a very urgent one today. And I think that we've seen these enormous demonstrations now on the streets of London, and I think we're going to continue to see them. And we're going to continue to see this struggle happening in Palestine. And this strike, I think, is the first of many. And this struggle is something that's going to last and is going to be sustained by this new generation who've completely thrown off the shackles of disunity and and defeatism that have kind of been one factor of our politics over the past year. And everyone who wants to stand in solidarity with the Palestinians needs to understand that and needs to know that this is something which is extremely urgent now, but is going to be extremely important over the next few weeks and months as Israel decides how much it can get away with, how much killing it can get away with. So I would really encourage people to, there's lots of organizations in the UK that can give ideas about what you can do from the most basic thing of signing a petition to taking uh, concrete action in your workplace, to finding out how, you know, wherever you are, whether your local council or whatever the institution is, how they're involved in uh, and complicit in what Israel is doing. And I think if we start to turn that anger and that outrage into concrete solidarity and concrete steps over the in the immediate term and over the long term, it's going to be extremely important for the Palestinian struggle for liberation. As a Palestinian, how hopeful do you feel about the future of your struggle? I, um, you know, I, I can't lie and say that there's not moments, especially when you see what's happening in Gaza, where you feel completely heartbroken and completely devastated. That so many families, especially in the middle of Eid, when people were celebrating one of the, the main Muslim holidays, were being massacred in the way they were being massacred. There's no way that you can see any of that and not be absolutely devastated and heartbroken. And I think that it's intended to break us as a people and to destroy our aspirations for freedom. But the most extraordinary thing, and what I've seen being in Jerusalem over the past, you know, in the past few weeks uh, of what's happened, is that people are willing to resist in the most extraordinary ways. People are out in the streets in enormous numbers all different sectors of society, all different ages, and that this resistance has spread to everywhere. So I have to be honest and say that every defeatist prediction that's been made about Palestine and the Palestinians has always fallen flat on its face. And to be hopeful is the only accurate position to take because time and again, Palestinians have demonstrated that they're willing to struggle for their freedom. When they've been written off, they've risen again to... And stand up for their rights. When we've been told that there's no hope for us, we've time and again stood up and been able to unify in a way that presents this extraordinary model of struggle and liberation to the world. 
So, you know, I don't know what will happen from here. And I don't know exactly the dynamics. And, you know, people often say, do you predict this or a third intifada or how exactly will these dynamics on the ground unfold? But I know that when you're amongst people here and when you know the Palestinian people as they are all around the world, including, of course, in the refugee camps where they've been kept for 73 years, you know that there's always hope because there's an extraordinary spirit of resistance and a complete refusal to surrender. And that's what gives everybody hope because it's always, despite the circumstances, this it, this this spirit that underpins it all. And it's difficult to relay if you're not here. But if you see the way people speak amongst themselves, they walk around, they swagger around town, you know, this is somewhere that they feel this is their home and they own it and they're not going to leave it, which is what Israel wants. And they refuse to bow down to that. So that's what gives me hope. And I think that's what millions of people around the world who are now standing in solidarity with us immediately recognize. Akram, thank you so much for joining me on this episode of A World to Win and total solidarity from me and all of our listeners in your struggle. Thank you so much, Grace. Trump, you know